Recorded in room 233 of the Texas Tech University School of Veterinary Medicine, this is the Rate of Vet Podcast. Today we will interview Donovan Patterson. This is Clayton Cobb again with the Raider Vet Podcast, and today I have a pretty special guest. I took a long drive to get over here, Athens, Texas. Uh, from the Texas Parks and Wildlife, we have Donovan Patterson. So just as an intro to Donovan, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, hi, everybody. Uh, I'm a natural resource specialist, or more appropriately titled, I'm a fish hatchery biologist with Texas Parks and Wildlife at the Texas Freshwater Fishery Center in Athens, Texas. Uh, we raise a couple different species of fish out there. Predominantly, we're a largemouth bass hatchery, <clears throat> but we also raise catfish, and uh, uh, we do rainbow trout in the wintertime for in enhanced angling opportunity. And then on top of that, we have to raise a lot of forage species for for feeding our adult largemouth bass. So we do a lot of koi and goldfish and fathead minnows to supplement to feed those adult fish. Uh, I'm the extensive biologist, which means I take care of all the ponds. And at the Freshwater Fishery Center, we've kind of got a multifaceted mission. We're part visitor center, uh, part kind of state park. We've got fishing ponds for people to go out and enjoy. And we've got uh, what I would equate to a Bass Pro Shop aquarium on steroids for people to tour and, and see. It's pretty neat to see all the endemic fish in Texas. Some of the really large charismatic, charismatic uh, alligator gar and blue catfish and other species like that that you don't usually get to see. And then originally, how I got turned on to this inviting Donovan down with us, it was funny. I would say almost close to a year ago, I think I was actually chatting with Michael Cruz Penn, about where do we teach about fish and aquaculture and algaes and where does that fit into the curriculum? We kind of looked around at each other and thought, I don't know anything about that. Yeah, me either. So we all knew little bits and pieces, but I was thinking back to a time when I was living in Northeast Texas and traveling the highway and I passed through Athens, Texas and I saw the sign for the freshwater fisheries and just hung a tight right and drove down the road a decent bit from where the sign was. I think it was like an extra 20 miles. Is that yeah, we like to draw in people from way further than they want to drive from. So we put signs about 40 miles away from the facility. Well, it in was any direction. It. <laughs> Most definitely. So I drove down there and it, it's really like he says, it was a, like a Bass Pro Shop on steroids. We walk in there and instead of seeing these exotic fish you would see in a saltwater aquarium, see huge alligator gar and perch and bass, crappie, and not only that they have the fishing center out back for some of the kids to cast around and uh, also i follow on facebook their share longer program pretty interested in a lot of the bass fishing throughout texas and been following some of the big hitting lakes especially this year with like ohiv and lake fork and it's just fun to watch and given the opportunity of how are we going to talk about the husbandry and care of uh, fish and aquaculture i thought i'm going to call those guys down there in athens and see if one of them's like dumb enough and desperate enough to get down here. And luckily they're all really willing to contribute and help us out over here. And we've had a ton of fun. The students are really, really interested today to put up with us and us asking a lot of questions showing how naive we are to aquaculture. But yeah, I was actually gonna see if you wanted to share a little bit about the whole Share Lunker program, the hatchery and fishery you'll have down there. Sure, the Share Lunker program is, uh, to put it, in a really short explanation, it's a selective breeding program whose goal is to create bigger, better bass in Texas. Um, the program started in the early 80s as the uh, Sherilunker program. I think it was sponsored by Budweiser at the time. And since then, we've had a couple different sponsors. And Toyota is our current sponsor now, so I'll give them a shameless plug for sponsoring us. But 
Uh, the program is designed such that we can improve the genetic material in our broodstock by taking fish that fishermen catch that are 13 pounds or greater and bringing them back to Athens and then spawning them and integrating some of those uh, offspring into our selective breeding program by rearing them up and, and adding them to our collection of broodstock. So if a fisherman catches a 13-pound fish anywhere in the state of Texas, they can call us and we'll come pick up that fish and bring it back to our hatchery. We'll doctor it, isolate it, quarantine it, make sure everything about the fish is okay. And then we will attempt to spawn that fish and we'll take some of the offspring and put them into our, our uh, future brooder development program. And we'll take the rest of the offspring either back to the lake or back to some of the other lakes that have developed or that have contributed cherry lunkers to the program or to other research lakes where we're trying to determine what creates bigger, better bass in Texas. So uh, a couple different uses for those offspring and, and really, really important that the anglers either loan or donate those fish to us when they get them because the, the angler, when they catch the fish, they technically still own it. And they can do one of three things with it. They can either release it right back into the lake, or I guess one of four things. They could flay it in front of us, which would make us very sad. Uh, they can release it back into the lake. They can loan it to us to spawn and integrate into our program and then bring the fish back when we're done with it, or they can donate it to us so that we can use it over and over again. And if, if they donate it to us, then sometimes that fish will go on display. Sometimes we'll try and spawn it mul multiple times so that we get multiple year classes of brood fish from that genetic material. And the goal of that program is to create record fish in Texas. And we've actually had some fish that were stocked 10 years ago as part of the Sherlunker program, where those fish that were once Sherlunker offspring have now entered the Sherlunker program as 13 pound plus fish. And they both came from the Marine Creek reservoir in the DFW area. They were part of a research project. I don't know if you've ever been to Marine Creek, but it's kind mm -hmm. of a, in, as far as reservoirs go, it's a desolate wasteland. There's not much habitat. There's not much structure in there. That's a huge shad population. And so for a, a largemouth bass to grow to that size and that environment, genetics would have to be really important. And we were able to trace the genetics of those fish back to sherlunkers that we stocked in there. And so these were fish that we had handled in Athens before that we had spawned and, and raised in Athens to about six inches and released in Marine Creek that 10 years later have re-entered the program as 13-pound fish. So there's evidence of the Sherlunker program uh, being successful and, and 10 years to go from a fingerling to 13 pounds is a pretty short amount of time for a largemouth bass too. So what's the biggest bass you've handled? personally, or that the facility's handled? Because we've had fish in excess of the state record at the facility, but they don't count because we feed them up to over that size. <laughs> so both then. Okay, I'm, both I'm really the curious about this. Personally, I think the biggest one I've held was 17 and a half pounds. And the biggest one at the facility, I think they named her Star. Um, I think she got up to about 20 pounds. And what's the state record? Is 18.3 or something like that, or 18.1. It came from Lake Fork. Barry Sinclair caught it in the 90s. It's it's a pretty old record, so we're looking for somebody to get out there and break it, and that's part of why the Sherlunker program exists. We don't want these records to stay records for long. We want them to be broken. Yeah, I was really thinking with how hot <laughs> OHIV was this year that something would have come out of there that would have broken it. Well, I mean, something did. If you consider that 16 entries into the Sherlunker program is pretty impressive in, in one season, so... How many big fish do you want out of there in excess of that but, uh, without being too greedy? But, yeah, we were hoping we'd get a state record this year, too, and we thought we were going to get it based on the, the amount of entries we were getting. This was kind of a banner year for the program. 
Yeah. So would you say that this year was y'all just had more entries and or like more people actually got a hold of y'all and entered their fish or were bass just that much better this year? Uh, it's it's really tough to tell. I think the rise in popularity of a technique called uh, live scoping or using the technology called live scoping has, has come a long way. And it was really popular at Ivy this year because you can basically see the fish you're casting for. And so uh, Ivy got pretty clear. People were using the live scope. They could see the fish down there and they were picking the fish out they wanted. And so a lot of big fish were caught out of Ivy using that technique. Uh, so even the, using that technique, though, I mean, part of the, me in my head's like, that's not real. Like, that's yeah, nice. The program is also, I mean, we've gone through a reboot in the last three or four years, just trying that it felt like it had lost its pizzazz a little bit. And so we were trying to, to reestablish the program and we're doubling down on it. So we're adding things like... Uh, shopping sprees to Bass Pro Shop entries and stuff like that, other incentives to donate fish. And so we had a really bad year about seven years ago where several of the Sherlunkers passed away, and that gave us some really bad press that was hard to come back from because the guides were telling people, yeah, don't donate your fish, it'll die, just put it back in the lake. And so that's that was a that year was an anomaly. I mean, usually we have 100% survival or, or pretty close to it. One or two fish die here or there, but a 13-pound fish is usually pretty old. So it's not unheard of that a fish would die but we take all of the blame when that happens so the, the angler's probably been holding that fish up for hours taking pictures of it and and handling it and doing all sorts of things to stress that fish out and sometimes we're driving seven hours to go pick up that fish uh, and it doesn't matter if they've been body slamming it at the boat ramp once we take that fish it's our fault if it dies and so yeah. we had one bad year like that about seven years ago and uh, that got us some bad press and then the program got restarted and and we've had increasing levels of success and the program's kind of picking up steam again and uh, it's been nice to see when i got to athens about six years ago we were getting three to five entries and this last year we got 23 entries which was more than we could handle at once and we had to call one of the other hatcheries and say you got to help us with this which is so exciting for the program and producing a, to have. a lot more fingerlings to go out to the lakes that way and produce bigger better bass well, and I think that's a pretty good problem to have when you have to call up and ask for help in a situation like that. Yeah, it's I humbling, mean, but it's a wonderful problem to have because everyone wants to be the cowboy that does it on their own and to have to say, I need help with this is a little bit humbling. But uh, getting the other hatcheries involved definitely creates a lot more opportunity to uh, produce a lot more fish when we're restricted by our, our infrastructure and by our staff at our hatchery. If we can expand that to another hatchery, it may take away production from another species, but this is a pretty important program for us. And I feel like, I mean, weird years happen with, I don't care what you do for a living. You have those off years, but uh, have the evidence right there showing the multiple generations of share lunkers and the productivity that y'all have experienced. I think it's kind of proof is right there that everything's And it came rational. at just the perfect time when the program was kind of going through a reboot and, and needed that really good press. Uh, to see that there was success coming from that program was important for the public and the anglers to see, I think. And, so, and for scientists, too, we don't want to be dumping money into something that isn't working either. So the fact that we can measure the success is really important from for a data-driven agency like Parks and Wildlife. And so if I had to ask you, I, don't want, you, I want you to pick a favorite, but calling someone out, what is your favorite lake or reservoir or anything to go to around here in Texas? So I'm going to tell you one I hate so that everyone will go to that lake and I won't have any coming. No, I was kidding. Um, I love to fish uh, the smaller lakes, and I like to fish for obscure stuff. So Dangerfield State Park out in deep east Texas uh, near the Marshall area 
it, it's full of chain pickerel, which are kind of unique for Texas fishermen. So if you've seen the northern fishermen catch uh, pike and muskie, it's a smaller version of that. But they get pretty big in that one water body, and there's so many of them in there that uh, it's hard for other carnivorous fish species to establish. So I really like going to fish there because it's a unique angling opportunity in Texas to catch that family of fish. The isosity are, are kind of rare in this part of the world. Uh, if you're talking about bass fishing, it's really hard to beat Lake Athens or Lake Fork. There's just really good bass fishing in there. And then proximity to me is important, too. I don't want to be driving 10 hours to OHIV to, yeah. Lake, <laughs> to fish for a couple Lake hours Athens and then and drive Lake back. Lake Fork so, are a pretty easy drive for you. Uh, and the bass fishing is just fantastic there. Oh, yeah. So Lake Athens, for its size, if you tracked how many of the Sherlunker of the different size classes were caught, because we also measure 8 pounds and above, uh, and 10 to 13 pound size classes too, they can get enter, entered into the program, but not donated for spawning. If you track all those catches, uh, Athens for its size is always really close to the top of the list. And, and it does get pretty high pressure because it's a good bass fishing lake and because of its proximity to fork and it's kind of sheltered from the wind, unlike some of the big reservoirs. Uh, but it's one of my favorite lakes to fish, I think. With it being close, do y'all stock it too? It, it does get a lot of, of stockings. It's never very high on the priority list, though, because it just kind of gets, it, it's got a really productive bass fishery on its own. It doesn't need a whole lot of stocking. So if we're stocking for supplemental or for population enhancement, uh, Athens is pretty low on the, the priority list for need because its population is pretty good at reproducing on its own. Fork, on the other hand, probably gets about 25% of our production every year. I, I don't think you can put enough fish in Fork just because of how many bass tournaments there are and the angling pressure that lake gets. Uh, the management biologist who's in charge of that lake basically tells me, uh, whatever you can put in fork, we'll take it. So bass-wise, we put a lot of largemouth bass fingerlings in fork, probably more than anywhere else. So if you had to say, well, I mean, we're now looking at our region, Panhandle and West Texas, between the top down to El Paso, how much... Do you all mess with uh, this area quite a bit, knowing that we don't have near a as much lot, water? A lot. A and it's because you don't have a whole lot of water that we do. So the lakes during the drought go dry. We have to restart those with populations. My first year in Athens was 2016. That was the year the lakes in West Texas finally started to fill up. We sent 85% of our production to West Texas to restart those lakes. They're full again. We got to get fish in them and get people out there fishing. So ivy never goes completely dry, but it gets sucked down to a, a small little puddle where all the fish are concentrated. We hit it pretty hard that year. And uh, all of the fish out, or all of the lakes out in West Texas got stocked really heavily after they filled back up with water. And then once they're full and we've stocked them once, the management biologists will come out and measure again, see what the populations look like. And if they're still needing a supplement, we put more fish in there. And if they don't need a supplement, then they get moved to the bottom of the priority list. And then when we've hit all the other lakes that are a higher priority, those lakes come right back up. So uh, I don't want West Texas to feel like it's getting left out because there isn't much water out here. In reality, we send a lot of fish out to OHIV and, and it produced so many sherlunkers this year that it got a whole lot of sherlunker fingerlings too because its contribution to the program was disproportionately higher than all the other uh, lakes in Texas. So it got pretty close to 80,000 fingerlings, I think, of sherlunker fingerlings into ivy that's not just the florida bass fingerlings that we also produce so um, that's pretty cool to know i mean in my head i think we don't have much water we don't have many lakes why mess with us out here but the lakes you got are really really good so yeah i guess ivy so. is a, a great bass fishing lake 
And Alan Henry is another good fishing lake, contributed a couple lunkers in the last couple of years. Uh, and any other cool programs that y'all have going on over there that y'all are pretty excited about or just trying to keep the share lunker moving and improving? Well, in terms of fishing or just general research or anything and everything. Actually, I'm curious about the research then. So research, we've got a couple interesting things going on. <clears throat> We're doing, Athens has really soft water. All of East Texas has really soft water. Uh, but waters with higher hardnesses and alkalinities are a lot better for fish culture. So we're experimenting with some really highly concentrated calcium carbonate solutions uh, to try and bring the hardness and alkalinity up in our production systems. And what that'll do is in turn boost zooplankton populations. And by boosting the zooplankton populations, we're going to get fish that grow faster or hardier, have better body condition and, and have basically an improved product. So we're going to be testing that out pretty soon. We've played around a lot with stocking densities to try and get the most most best fish we can by manipulating how many we put in and how many uh, and how we fertilize and that kind of stuff. Um, a lot of those projects are, are complete and some of them got published. Um, I'm just now in the middle of trying to finish a PhD where we're trying to culture some threatened and endangered mussel species, the Texas heel splitter and the uh, uh, Texas fawn's foot are two of the species we're looking into. They're uh, potentially about to be listed as, as in, uh, locally endangered. And so we're trying to, one, do a lot of life history research on those mussels, and then two, come up with hatchery techniques to raise these mussels if we were ever asked to uh, augment populations of these endangered species. Well, and kind of venturing into what we went over earlier, I know you got to meet a lot of the students and speak with them. Uh, first of all, how did you feel about it? Did you enjoy yourself? I did. I was actually pretty intimidated by the whole process, being a not-so-good student myself and having to give a lecture to what I would consider really good students if they made it into a vet school. But Well, and that was actually my next question is, how are you as a student? <laughs> not great. Uh, I take that back. I'm, in my undergrad, I had an attitude problem, and, and that was manifested itself in not great grades, but I ended up going to grad school and I got a master's and I'm in the middle of the PhD right now. So my attitude has gotten a little bit better as I've gotten older, I guess. And academically, I've gotten, <laughs> I wouldn't say smarter, but I'm putting forth more effort maybe. Yeah. Um, but I've I've been super impressed with the facility in the vet school and, and coming from A&M, that's where I did my undergraduate and uh, graduate work and I'm doing my PhD now. It feels like the ultimate betrayal to come and, and give a talk <laughs> at Tech, but I'm, I'm very, very impressed with the school here in Amarillo and all the students and what y'all have put together so far. So. Well, and as we mentioned earlier, a majority of our students, I mean, Aggies and Raiders, both kind and kind. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a nice balance Very neat here. mix, and, and not all from one place either. Sometimes uh, College Station feels like they all came from Houston, Dallas, and San Antonio. So Yeah, and we have <laughs> plenty of raise your hands if you're from East Texas, and there's a whole yeah. bunch of them. Yeah. How about West? More of those. Down by the coast? Heck, we had those too. It was, it was pretty cool seeing all that. Very neat program y'all got. So what is one question you wish the students would have asked you? I'm glad they didn't ask more than they did, <laughs> just to be honest. I mean, uh, rather keep silent and be thought a fool than open my mouth and reveal all or remove all <laughs> doubt. So uh, uh, no, probably something they need needed to ask or at least to think about is <clears throat> in what scenario are these fish farmers or, or people who are raising fish or aquaculturalists going to be contacting the vet? Or am I going to be needing to go out to the farm? Are they going to be bringing fish in there? 
uh, what's the interaction going to be between the farmer and the vet? Because that's going to be super important if they're developing a relationship with those farmers. Can the vet just call them? Do they have that kind of relationship? And that's what the farmers are going to want to do because they're going to feel like they know more than the veterinarian does. And in a lot of cases, they will in in terms of fish diseases or, or what problems are going on. And they're just going to need a quick response from the vet. So uh, something to consider for those those students is what is my relationship going to be like with these aquaculturalists? Are they bringing me a bucket full of moribund fish or are they mailing me a bunch of frozen dead fish? How is this going to happen between us? Do I need to drive out there and do a skin scrape, bring my microscope with me? What What am I going to be doing when I get the call from this fish farmer? Well, and that's when the students are going to track you down and give you a holler. They remember they talked to And to Donovan. be honest, a lot of the times we get the call directly from the person with the problem. All my fish are dying. What do I do? They're like, oh, okay, I've got a lot of questions I got to ask you first, but I can't yeah. prescribe anything. You know that, right? They're like, okay, but what do I do if I need a prescription? It's like, well, then you got to call a vet, but yeah, you may I, or may I not know a, what you're talking about. I heard a few of the students approach you after the lecture and pull the same thing that they approach vets about and say, so I know that I don't have it in front of you and I don't really know what I'm talking about, but I have a fish at home <laughs> and they ask the same questions and all you can really yeah. do is follow with questions. And and the aquaculturalist or the fish farmer is going to be different than the person with the home aquarium. And my question to the person with the home aquarium is how much do you love that fish and, and mm-hmm. how replaceable is that fish to you? Because sometimes it's easier and cheaper to start mm-hmm. over with a new fish and learn to love a new fish than it is to treat the old one. But the fish farmer can't do that. He's got millions of dollars worth of product in the farm. He's got to save those fish. And so the reactions are going to be different. Like, I, I love my fish, but I don't want them to die is different than I'm about to lose a million dollars in, yeah. in product right now. So uh, so what would you say is your favorite species? To raise or just in general? Just in general. Just in general. I love freshwater drum, and I know that's a weird species to say you like, but they've got... Uh, they're they're the only member of their family that's in freshwater. I mean, there's the saltwater species like the redfish and the black drum and croaker and uh, whiting that you can catch in saltwater, but there's only that one in the freshwater. And, and they still behave like a saltwater fish. And then they're super important to the mussel species I'm trying to raise too. And so as a, a nerd for aquaculture in that way, I like the freshwater drum. Now to raise, I love raising largemouth bass because... Mm-hmm. That's what everybody wants to see you put in the lake for the most part. And they're, they're exciting to raise. And as an avid angler, like nothing makes me more excited than improving the lakes I'm about to go throw a hook into. So uh, to, to raise for aquaculture, I think I would have to say largemouth bass. And then to uh, study and just as a fish nerd, I, I tell you the freshwater drum. So that might be your favorite species. Favorite overall, favorite to raise. What would you classify as your spirit animal? Are we going for a fish? Do we on have this? to do a fish or yeah, it can be no, something? No, no, it could be anything. I'm actually curious if it's not going to be a fish. Well, as an extreme introvert, I'd probably have to say porcupine. <laughs> so if you're nice and prickly and, and people will stay away from you if you're covered with stickers. So you said <laughs> animal, so I couldn't choose pine cone, but porcupine's about the pine cone equivalent. Would you have said <laughs> pine cone? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, who wants to hug a pine cone? So. <laughs> okay, those are definitely the better answers we've had to the spirit animal question. <laughs> well, to wrap it all up, is there any last things you would like to say, any piece of advice for the students or word out to uh, any of our listeners? And I think I've said more words than I usually say in a week so far to date, but uh, 
I really appreciate you having me here to do the lecture. It's been a lot of fun. I learned a lot about the process. I'm really impressed with the school. So keep well, we up the good work. And I look forward to seeing where this goes in the next couple of years. Well, we appreciate it. It's been great having you. And of course, I mean, you're always welcome. We hope to have you back soon. With that being said, we'll say see you to all the listeners out there and look forward to seeing you again. This has been the Raider Vet Podcast. For more information, visit the Vet School's Facebook page or email us to svm at ttu.edu.